Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. This is Rob Moore, and I'm very excited to have a very special guest. Now, before we introduce him, a little bit of backstory. So if you'd have been with me end of 2005, start of 2006, I kind of had a life-changing, defining moment where my dad had a nervous breakdown in his pub and I'd amassed a load of debt. And really, that was the day in my life where I said, things have to change, otherwise I'm going to lose my dad and I'm not going to be worth anything. And I felt a big part of his sort of health demise, if you like. And fast forward maybe six months and I became what you might call a personal development junkie. So I was gorging on every personal development course or book or audio program. And I suppose I was probably searching for some answers, you know, the meaning of life and uh, why wasn't I not in control of my results of my life. And in that search, I found a man who, to me, really embodied and encapsulated. The meaning of life is probably quite a deep thing to say, but I probably would go that far. Now, of course, we're all learning and developing, but I went from being a very negative person, feeling like I was a victim against the world and where uh, I was given my cards and, and my life was poor and I couldn't do anything about it and I was very bitter. And then when I'd done all my personal development, I came a bit of a happy, clappy, positive junkie where I was trying to be positive about everything, even the terrible things that I felt really bad about and kind of denying the balance, if you like. And then I discovered the work of Dr. John Demartini, who I'm very privileged to say is on our podcast today. And I think his work has really helped me gain clarity in being an inspired person, building an inspired life, accepting downside as well as upside, challenge as well as support, making money and making a difference and, and kind of dealing with and embracing all sides of the thing, not just the extremes that we want in the moment. And whilst I know Dr. Demartini could talk to you for days and days on end, I know his seminars go on all through the night, we're going to focus today on being an entrepreneur and how some of his work and experience on being an entrepreneur can help you become an entrepreneur. So in a moment, we're going to get him to tell you a bit of his story in case you don't know him. And, and I believe about a billion people across the planet know him or have studied his work. So, I mean, that's a pretty amazing reach. So first of all, I'd like to say thank you for taking your time, uh, Dr. John, for uh, sharing the next hour. I'm really privileged. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. And if we dive straight in, I'd like to ask you if it's okay, what do you think is the nature and purpose of entrepreneurship? You know, what's the meaning of it? <laughs> I guess from an anthropological perspective, as human beings started to increase in numbers and populate the world, people started to have different areas of expertise and specialty, and they started to do transactions, which led to a market formation and a common currency system which then led to even more specialization and people want to fulfill needs. And the entrepreneur is the person who has foresight enough to look at what people might need and try to provide a, a supply to their demand. And uh, that economy is built out of that. 
And entrepreneurs are people who have enough foresight, enough innovative ideas to either directly or indirectly provide those those uh, those needs, fill those needs. So supply a product, a service, or idea with those needs. I think the purpose is the fulfillment of people's values. I also think that uh, in the process of doing that, they want to fulfill theirs. You know, Zig Ziglar taught me when I was 20 years old, if you help enough other people fulfill their lives, they'll help you fulfill yours. I think that's the essence of an entrepreneur. They're individuals that uh, have enough risk-taking to to innovate and create and step out on the pioneering frontier of something and try to fill a need before somebody else does it to grab market share. Okay. So I've got a couple of questions about that. And as you're listening, if you hear a bit of feedback, that just comes in and out. It's because we're on Skype. So the balance between making money for oneself and, you know, keeping our own overheads going and feeding our own desire for material items or lifestyle and then serving others and helping them make a profit or create a problem, sorry, create a solution to a problem. How do we deal with that balance of trying to make enough money and making a difference and balancing maybe sort of greed and altruism? Well, we have an internal thermostat that uh, some people call consciousness that attempts to find that balance. If you study a theory called equity theory, it explains this, that there's an inherent homeostat inside the human mind to try to find fair exchange. For instance, let's say you do a transaction with somebody and you do a service and provide a supply of some service or product to somebody, and they pay you less than what you feel it's worth. You have a tendency to get narcissistic and tend to want to demand more to get back into balance. And you get resistant and angry and they feel guilty and you feel proud and so what you do is the transaction, you get more assertive and they, they eventually give in and try to find a fair exchange. On the other hand, if the, you do a service and you don't, feel you, des, you, you don't feel you delivered enough supply to meet their demand and uh, they, didn't, they paid you more than you felt, then you feel move into an altruistic, uh, feel guilty and feel altruistic and try to compensate by going and being altruistic and giving more service. So you have a natural thermostat to try to bring that into fair exchange because the only thing that's sustainable is fair exchange. No, you won't continue to have business transactions with people that you don't feel is fair exchange. So if you want to have a long-term accomplishment, if you want to serve a vast number of people as an entrepreneur, you have to listen intuitively to that thermostat and make sure you're in fair exchange and find a balance between altruistic giving service and narcissistic receiving rewards. And that is a very fine line. And the people who master that become the great entrepreneurs. So this brings up another couple of really interesting points. And I guess the first one is, are you therefore saying that a lot of charity or altruism is in fact a releasing of guilt to try and feel better about oneself and put oneself more into balance? Well, uh, in my (laughs) book, How to Make One Hell of a Profit and Still Get to Heaven, I had a chapter on gifting and it's in what I'm about to say is going to probably startle some people and probably upset some people, but that's okay. Anytime you're giving something and it makes you feel good, the question is why? And what we found and traced back is it's because you feel down, you, you somehow have shame and guilt of the past that there's been some unex, unfair exchanges and you're wanting to compensate by doing something to feel better about yourself. It actually doesn't sustain itself. If you give somebody something for nothing, you actually disable them and enable them and hold them back from accountability, responsibility, productivity, and dignity. It's wiser to have fair exchange. That's the only thing that's sustainable. So charity, I don't think, is really a a good quality term. I don't think there is such a thing. There's either a hidden agenda or there's a, a compensation for shame and guilt of the past. 
And I'd rather just get up front about it and, and make sure there's a fair exchange uh, up front because I've been involved in, uh, in charities and I've seen behind the scenes what's going on and there's, uh, and they've done research on it and there's a hidden agenda is usually going on or there's compensation. So I'm a firm believer in making people accountable with fair exchange. That's the only thing that's sustainable. I've seen it uh, in, the, in the charitable world. I've seen that people become dependent on that. In, in some countries, they become dependent on that. And then there's resentment built up and you rob people of this accountability. And then instead of you getting the outcome you want by actually making a sustainable culture, you actually undermine it. So I'm a firm believer if you're going to do something, give somebody with, a, with the gift to give them accountability or give them the reasons why they earned it. Make sure it's a fair exchange. Sure. So if we think, put this into being an entrepreneur and a kind of like a customer perspective then, so if one charges too little for one service, one can create narcissism in the customer where they demand more than they pay for. And in that instance, that's unsustainable because they can't maintain a sustained profit. Well, if a person is anytime, well, just use this example. Imagine that you're a, a guy 30 years old. And you meet this really hot, beautiful uh, woman. And, and you go, wow, I'm infatuated. You know, you see more similarities and differences. You, you, you say to yourself, oh, my God, she has the same number of eyes I have, the same number of teeth, the same number of ribs. She must be my soulmate kind of thing. And you're really infatuated. Well, while you're infatuated with them and you put them on a pedestal and you minimize yourself in return and fear the loss of them, you'll automatically start sacrificing what's really valuable to you for them and to be with them. And in the process of doing it, you'll accumulate degrees of resentment because you're having to be somebody you're not in order to be with them. And eventually you start to build up enough resentment to break the infatuation to get your life back into balance with them and put them not on a pedestal, but to put them back in your heart. And then you get to be yourself and they get to be themselves, which is what all relationships want, a fair exchange of two authentic people. The same thing in business with transaction. If you infatuate with the customer and you think that they're more more uh, got way up on a pedestal, you'll sacrifice on the negotiation table and minimize yourself. And shame and guilt tends to create that. But if you're proud and self-righteousness and you go in there cocky and you think, oh, they need my product and boy, I'm, I'm important, then you won't listen to their needs. And um, if you go too far into pride, you eventually get humbled. If you go too far into humility, you tend to get narcissistic to rise back up. Nature's automatically trying to get it back into balance. And, and wisdom is just Instead of trying to go through these oscillations, just understand it and maintain fair exchange. It's the only thing that really works. Sure. So looking at this from a pricing perspective then, is it fair to say that some entrepreneurs may benefit, especially if they're startups or if they're not really that confident in business yet, they may benefit from increasing their prices, which might drive a desire to increase service and also their a more balanced perception from the customer? Well, when I first started in the speaking well, I started speaking when I was 18. That's when I first started teaching. <clears throat> that was 43, almost 44 years ago. And, uh, but I didn't really start getting a decent fee for it till I turned 23. And uh, it was kind of an altruistic uh, love donation kind of thing. I had a low image of myself, a low value on myself, and I was afraid to say, oh, by the way, can you pay me kind of thing. And that was my own self-depreciation. It wasn't anything to do with them. It was just me. And finally, I got kind of my little altruistic... Uh, self-depreciated state eventually got pissed off enough to say, you know what, damn it, I deserve something. <laughs> so I put a fee on it. And the moment I put a fee on it, they paid me. It was like the world was waiting for me to value me. And the moment I paid me, then they paid me. And uh, the moment I valued myself, they paid me. And then as I raised my value, they paid me more. 
And it's a give and take between making sure that you can make a distinction, a unique selling proposition that adds value to them and compare yourself to other people in the marketplace offering a similar service. And as long as you can add more value and demonstrate more value and be truly deliver more value, you deserve more income. And it's, it's about a fair exchange and it's all perceptual. If you can have them perceive a greater value, then you deserve a greater return. It's funny you say that because if I rewind back to 2008, nine, when I started what you might call consulting, we used to run a group mentorship and we had about 15 people on that group mentorship and we charged them £2,000 for the year each. And they got pretty much all of us 24 hours a day. And then fast forward to now, and myself and Mark, my business partner, our fees are between 20 and £45,000 for half hour sessions once a month. And we have a way bigger waiting list and way more demand. Like the waiting list is almost a year. There must be an explainable phenomenon in that. Well, there's a perception. There's a perception of your valuing. Their value of you goes up as your value of you goes up. I've raised my fees pretty well most every year over the last forty something years, and uh, and every time I raise my fee, my outreach gets bigger. The quality clients go up. Yeah, the people I get to hang out with uh, are more expanded. So you know, the world is waiting. I, I, if anybody is listening to this and wants to get something really, really cool, they may already know it, but. Just know that when you value you, the world values you. When you invest in you, the world invests in you. When you acknowledge you have something unique to offer and honor your own magnificent uniqueness, the world begins to see it. And the moment you value it, the more the world will value it. It's that simple. Just I sit down and tell people, write down 100 benefits to your customers of why you, you benefits to the customer of you charging the new fee you want to charge and 100 drawbacks to the customer of charging anything less. And just keep doing that until your mindset owns what you have to offer. And the moment you do, people won't balk. They only balk when there's a part of you balking inside. The world is reflecting what's going on inside. If you're clear about it, you look them straight in the eye, and that's what my fee is, you get it. It's that simple. But you have to really communicate the value. And certainty is what people pick up on. Okay, so really what we're saying is, that net worth and the scale and reach and success of a business is directly linked to the self-worth of the owner of the business? I won't say it limited to that, but that's definitely a factor because there are some people that uh, happen to hit a absolute goldmine on what people need and um, they've got a team around them and they may not even feel worthy, but they've got a team around them that does and they're able to build a business around it. But uh, they end up, if they don't feel worthy of it, having difficulty receiving it, and they'll end up giving it to charity or whatever because they feel awkward receiving. And I've seen that many times. So I, 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 it's about your own, the more integral you are with what your goals are, with what you really value, the more your self-worth is strengthened and the more you're willing to receive a fair exchange. And I think that's the key is being really inspired by what you do and actually going out of your way to serve people. That's the two basic things. It's, if it's matching your values, it's matching their values, you make a gold mine. Okay, thank you. So that's question one done, and we've got a lot of questions, so this is, we, we'll move on. I know most people around the planet, certainly most of our listeners will know of you, but could you just give us a little bit of your story of becoming an entrepreneur, and if you see yourself as one, in fact, and, and how you see yourself, so that we can kind of connect with you and, and understand you a little bit more? Well, I'd have to say that the first time I ever demonstrated entrepreneurship, I was nine, and um, 
Well, actually, probably even younger, but I used to shine my shoes for my dad, and uh, I got paid for it, and I started to go around and ask people in the neighborhood if I could shine their shoes. But uh, I was probably four or five then, and uh, people let me do it sometimes. But I was nine years old when I first had a company where I had employees. And I, I went to my dad and I said, Dad, I want to I want to make some money. I want to buy a baseball and a baseball bat and a glove. And he said, well, did you mow the yard? I said, yes, sir. Did you edge the sidewalk? Yes, sir. Did you sweep the sidewalk and the, and the, the uh, you know, the driveway? Yes. Did you clean out the garage? Yes. Did you clean the gutters out? Yes. Did you trim the hedges? Yes. Did you pull the weeds? Yes. Did you shine my shoes? Yes. He said, well, son, I don't have anything else that needs to be done, so I can't pay you for doing something I don't need to be done. You have to go to the neighbors. If you want to make money, you're going to have to go to the neighbors and see what you can do to find some way of serving them. Wow, what a great gift my dad gave me. Mm. So I went down the street, and I looked at some yards, and I saw some raggedy yards, and I knocked up on the door, and I said, uh, would you like your yard mowed or edged or your hedges clipped or weeds pulled or whatever? And um, the lady looked at me and looked down at me because I was nine. And they said, well, how much? And I had I forgot to think that out. <laughs> <laughs> I said, uh, $5. I thought that was an enormous amount of money at the time. And $9 for the big lots. And um, for the mowing and edging and the hedge clipping even more. And so they said, sounds fair to me. And so I went to the garage. I got all the equipment out and I started to go to work. And I had blisters and bee stings and all the stuff you get from doing that. And I uh, collected the money and I went home and I bought me a baseball and a glove and a bat. And my dad said, I see you got a new baseball and glove and everything else. Where'd you get it, son? I said, well, I went out, worked and earned it. He said, what did you do? I said, I mowed yards and, you know, weeded and clipped hedges. He said, what equipment did you use? And I said, well, the equipment in the garage, dad. He said, well, son, I got to teach you something. When you use equipment like that, it deteriorates. And there's a thing called a depreciation schedule. And I'm going to have to charge you for that. And I, and I just went blank all of a sudden. He, he goes, so you owe me, let's see, how many yards did you do? And how often did you use it? And how many hours did you use it? And he said, you owe me $7.50. And I went, well, I don't have it. I spent it. And he said, well, that'll teach you not to spend your money until you pay your bills and pay all your dues. And so I had to go out and do two more yards to um, pay him off. And then I, I, I made less profit. And I'm sure every entrepreneur knows that, what that's like when they get less profit. And I um, then I... I got this crazy thing happened. I was pushing this mower one summer in the sun and this kid came up on a bicycle and he says, uh, he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm mowing a yard. He says, well, it's not even your yard. How come? And I said, well, I've got a business. And I said, would you like to help me? And he says, yeah, it's I'll pay you 50 cents to push this mower around. And anyway, I got uh, three kids, uh, one to do the mowing, one to do the edging and one to do the sweeping and, and uh, uh, raking. And um, we started doing clipping hedges and stuff. And I got three groups of three kids helping me in the neighborhood that summer. And we ended up getting uh, equipment from the Zubrods and the Mallows across the street. And I had to rent it from them the same price my dad had. And I got a little business going. And I was going around selling the deals. And they were doing most of the work. And I was making sure they did a good job. And I ended up collecting. After everybody's paid, I got $45 in 1963, which is probably worth about six or $700 today. And uh, that was a, an average summer day. And I bought me a bicycle. I bought me a golf set. I started buying stuff. My dad said, he said, son, uh, I see you keep buying things. Do you have any money saved? I said, well, no, sir. I keep buying stuff. And I work the next day. He said, well, I got to teach you something. You got to learn how to save your money so it works for you. So he bought me a coin collection set and a piggy bank. Rob, I still have that piggy bank on the 52nd <laughs> floor of my Houston office 
that has never been opened since 1963. The same piggy bank filled with coins as a metaphor for long-term thinking. He got me a coin collection set, which I eventually sold for a profit. And um, he then said, well, now that you learn how to make money and save a little bit of money, I'm going to give you the next step in, in uh, learning how to be you know, free. And I thought, well, if he, every time he talks to me, I'm spending money now. And he says, uh, from now on, I'm going to start charging you for rent, clothing, and food. And I just went blank. And he, he, and he says, you got you got to pay me, you know, throughout the day, throughout the, the week, five bucks. And I said, you're kidding. And I said, no. He says, I want you to know what it's like to be free. But now you can take your bicycle. You can go anywhere you want to go, as far as you want to go, as long as you're home by 9 o'clock at night. And I said, okay, you got a deal. Because I wanted to be free of my bike. My dad was training me to be an entrepreneur because he knew I had learning problems and I was speech impeded. And uh, so he was trying to make me street smart. That was the beginning of my entrepreneur state. Wow. It's also funny you say that because I had a similar experience with my dad. He used to have pubs and from literally four or five years old, when he'd empty the pool tables and the fruit machines, he'd help me count the money. And if I counted it exactly right and bagged it all up properly, he'd give me a big 10 pence piece. And he used to take me around all of the pubs that he'd bought. And when he was going buying inventory and stock with cash, he'd teach me about that. And yeah, he'd teach me to save money and teach me to play pool and learn how to what used to be called then hustle, though I don't really like that word in business. And uh, do you think that's Im- just a quick tangent because it's not on the script, but I think it's important for many listeners. And let's just do a quick answer on this one. Do you think it's important to teach our children these kind of entrepreneurial skills? Absolutely. I think that uh, if the children of today are sometimes so easily taken care of that they become wishy-washy and uh, they have d- demands and entitlements and expectations if they don't have accountabilities. Mm. It's accountabilities, challenges, responsibilities that build a, an entrepreneur. The greater the challenge, the greater the entrepreneur. The easy life does not build an entrepreneur. They're used to security and they go work for other people. Yeah, you have to give them accountabilities. I, I've tried to, my two daughters are entrepreneurs. My son, I haven't been tough enough on. So I've, I've accelerated the toughness the last, about the last two years particularly. And now he's got the, 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 the gauntlet on him. I'm, I'm giving him hard, hard knocks, hard realities now. So now he has to pay for everything he's doing. It, you know, I'm making him tough on him because he, he was slower in the development. I think the kids today don't develop until their mid twenties. It used to be you're 16 to 18. You wanted out of the house and be independent. Now I think that they, uh, you know, it's a little different story today. It's a little later. You've touched there on something I, I really believe is important in building your own business, being an entrepreneur. And that's the challenge and enduring the challenge and having the challenge and going through the challenge. And of course, I suppose statistically, you might say, if you look at say 80, 20 principle, you know, most people don't succeed in the thing that they start doing. And maybe that's because they're not prepared to endure the challenge or they expect it's going to be a bit easier. You know, they may have, maybe have a naive or deluded perception when they go in. Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, we have. Everybody lives by a set of priorities or values in life. And whenever we live congruently in an alignment with our highest values, our highest priorities, our executive center comes online. And that's the front of the brain, the, the forebrain, not the hindbrain. And this center is involved in inspired vision, uh, strategic planning, executing plans, self-governance, and foresight, seeing a vision in the future and bringing it into reality. This one sets objective, objective re- has objective reason and sets objective goals, ones that are balanced. And then if you're not living by your highest values, you're unfulfilled and you don't have meaning 
And so you look for immediate gratification and you tend to set quick fixes. You know, you try to look for the, the gamble and the quick fix and try to get rich overnight and try to get something for nothing. And, uh, you know, you wager too big a bet. And you set up fantasies for yourself and you have a confirmation bias and a disconfirmation bias and you set yourself up for a big fall just to humble you, to get you back into balance. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think that uh, it's essential to, to set goals that are real, that are objective, and then do some due diligence on it, some planning. Alec McKenzie in the book called The Time Trap, he talked about uh, successful business entrepreneurs are people that do think ahead and don't have to learn from hindsight, trial and error. They learn from foresight and mentorship and intuition and planning. So I think that's the key is making sure you set real balanced goals, not fantasies. Fantasies create nightmares and balanced goals create realities. Okay, thank you. Let's talk about the relationship with money, between money and entrepreneurship. How focused should we be on money and the relationship with money to business and vice versa? Just maybe some random musings and rants. Well, I think people can sense your motive. I don't think it's hard to sense a motive when you go and do business with somebody. It, it surfaces eventually. And I think that uh, if you're too narcissistic and you're too focused on just the cash and not on the service, it, it, does, it eventually works against you. If I, you have to strike a balance between those. You need both altruism and narcissism. Again, if you get too narcissistic, you'll undermine your business because you won't care enough about your customer to meet their needs. If you get too altruistic, you won't care about your own needs to, and you'll altruistically give away your profits. You got to find a balance. Everything is striving for equity and equanimity. Equanimity means you're not exaggerating or minimizing yourself. And equity means that you are not exaggerating or minimizing others. When those are both balanced, you have the maximum fair exchange. That's, it's, it's been shown in almost every mathematical calculation of, of, of economics. It's been shown that. So we have a thermostat for it. We just have to learn to listen to it. And we get smacked if we don't. <laughs> we end up getting uh, you know, smacked and humbled every time we try to get away from that center point, trying to have fair exchange. So what you're saying is, if we get too extreme in one area, altruism or narcissism, the universe or whatever we want to call that thing is going to find a way of giving us the lesson we need. We'd get the exact lesson, but we've all done it. I mean, there's not a person out there as an entrepreneur that hasn't had to go through a few oscillations on that. They you know they go and try. I remember when I first got into practice years ago, I was Mr. Nice Guy, Mr. Optimistic, Mr. Positive, Mr. Nice Guy, you know, and tried to uh, hug all the patients and do this, something else. And then when they didn't pay and they said, well, I forgot my checkbook or I couldn't do this. Oh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. And but I, then I'd come home and I'd bitch to my spouse and said, you know, that that sucker did this to me. And I was and she said, why don't you tell the client that instead of me? <laughs> and I. Uh, Finally, I got firmer and tougher and, and said, this is my fee. And if not, then you'll, I, I assume that you do not value my service and, and you can go somewhere else kind of thing. And I went to the other extreme. And then I found it that I was too uh, harsh on that and too self-focused. And eventually you kind of settle down. You oscillate until you finally settle down. And, and that, that's uh, learning how to govern yourself and, and govern it. And there's after a while, you get a good feel for when the fair exchange is done. Right now, if I do a consult with somebody, I did a consult the other day with somebody that after an hour and 15 minutes, I still didn't feel like I delivered what I felt the man was wanting. And I gave him an extra 15 minutes and then we got it. And I felt like, man, we got fair exchange right now. And he was very thankful. And I love having a fair exchange where I, I feel like I delivered the service. He's got what he wanted. I've got what I want. I got a fair exchange. I've also had a situation where I've done some service and uh, I, I, I told him, I said, I've given you tremendous value. And uh, we've gone over now, and I'm going to charge you a little bit more. 
I've gone both the sides. I like to have a clear consciousness. And anytime you're either too narcissistic or too altruistic, your mind has noise in it. And it's trying to get you back into a centered mind where you have free consciousness. And knowing how to, to trust that and listen to that is, is an entrepreneur has to have. Great. So there's, there's something that's always fascinated me, a question that I've always wanted to answer. And it's why. <laughs> you know, why is there this oscillating balance? Why do we need to be in constant flux and try and achieve this center when we probably don't really know what this center is? to entrepreneurship and life? I mean, it's, I know it's a big, wide, vast question. What's your take on that? Well, it's been shown in biology, ecology, and uh, sociobiology that, that maximum growth and development occurs at the border of chaos and order. And the second you have your shit together, excuse the expression, and you feel like everything's in order, you automatically have a yearning to want to go out and expand yourself into an unknown and tackle some new stuff. And uh, if you don't, if you, otherwise you're, you're bored. You need, to, you need to go out and do something. And uh, you want to tackle the next thing. You want to grow a bigger business. I mean, I remember when I opened up my practice, I, I said, oh, I want to see 20 patients a day. I got to 20 patients a day. I want to do 30 patients a day. Got to 30 patients. I want to do 50 patients a day. Got there. I want to do 75 patients a day. Good. Got to want to do 100 patients a day. I kept making the raise the bar and taking on bigger challenges. Then I want to have doctors, five doctors working for me doing that. And I just kept raising the bar. And, and it's a natural thing to want to go back into some new chaos to keep yourself challenged, to keep extracting out of you new skills and new talents in the growth process. So you're automatically perturbing the system to bring it back into order. And then how quick you can see the order in the new chaos is determined how fast you keep going to the next level. So could that therefore then explain why challenge is a good thing, why we need challenge? Absolutely. If you don't fill your day with challenges that inspire you, it's going to keep filling up with challenges that don't. The key is to find things that you know will serve humanity that's a challenge that people haven't uh, solved and you go out and solve it and you get inspired by it. That's the greatest challenges to have. When you do and you fill your day that way, you don't have distressing challenges. You have eustressing challenges. Eustress is actually, they found that people when they're doing something that's meaningful, that's a challenge, but it's inspiring to them. They can work all day long. They don't get stressed. They don't have health issues. But when they feel like they're not doing something meaningful and they keep attracting challenges they don't want, that's distress and it shortens your life. And therefore... The bigger challenges one solves as an entrepreneur, the more financially remunerated they could become. That's exactly it. The uh, remuneration basically is proportion to how much service. I was taught by a guy named Jim Parker that uh, money is a measure of services rendered. If you serve more people, you deserve more money. I, I asked people how many people here have ever used Microsoft Windows. I mean, I've asked literally millions of people in live seminars, how many of you ever used Microsoft Windows? They all put their hands up just about. I said, well, now you know why he's a billionaire. He gave you something you needed that served you that made things more efficient, Windows. I said, so anytime uh, people give you something that's valuable, they, they, they deserve to be compensated. And then when maybe he came, became maybe, hypothesizing here, too narcissistic and having billions and billions, society forces him into charity. Well, that's the thing. He went narcissistic. He got a little too one-sided and nature brought him back into balance. And now he's striked a little bit better balance. He's got, uh, he's got his team doing some of the, the business now, and he's got his charity. But even the charity, if he goes too far with the charity and gives money to something that robs people of dignity, accountability, responsibility, and productivity, he'll eventually go back into narcissism to say, no, I'm not going to give it to that charity. I'm going to give it to one that gives me a real result. Mm. 
Wow, uh, this is fascinating. I could talk about this for hours, but we've got more questions. So what do you think are the most important functions of being an entrepreneur or a business? Well, the word prioritization is one of the biggest words I think I could emphasize. And, and, I, and I'll use my own example as a starting point. When I was in practice, I, uh, years and years ago, this is 34 years ago, I guess, I asked myself these questions. What, what do I do in a day? I wrote down every single thing I did in a day in my business, everything down to the detail. I just listed every single item of what action steps I did that day in an average day per month, let's say. And then next to it, I wrote down how much does it produce per hour or per minute? And I estimated to the best of my ability, what exactly does that produce? And, um, you know, some things produce a thousand an hour, some produce ten thousand an hour, some produce fifty dollars an hour. Everything had different prices that on it. Next to that, I wrote down how much meaning does it give me? And I put it on a one to ten scale. And then next to that, I put down how much would it cost me to replace somebody to do that for me? Somebody to delegate that to and, and the day they did the same quality job, what would it cost me to get somebody that could do that and do that for me? And then another column was how much time spent. And after literally putting everything I did on the table and putting it down like that, I really did. I looked at where the spreads were and I looked at what was really the highest priority things I could do and where were the majors and the minor stuff. And then I had to gradually delegate gradually more and more and more of that until I was doing only the highest priority things, which today is research, ride, travel, teach for me. But once I delegated that, I kept liberating myself from lower priority things that devalued me. And, and it lowered my income per hour. And it gave me permission to go out and do the highest priority things. And it made more income. And it gave me more ins inspiration because I was doing what I loved and getting handsomely paid and surrounding myself with people that were doing the same thing. And then I ended up helping the economy and helping jobs and a whole bunch of things. And so prioritization is one of the most important principles that I think we can learn in, in the business entrepreneur world. Prioritization of what you do with your motor functions and prioritization of your clients and prioritizations of the procedures you do on your clients. I mean, everything has got to be prioritized. We could call it Parkinson's law. If you don't fill your day with high priority actions that inspire you, it will fill up a low priority distractions that don't. We could call it entropy. Anything you don't bring order to gets into entropy and breaks into disorder. We could call it Ricardo's law. It's where you have the competitive advantage. We could call it uh, Pareto's principle, the 2080 rule, whatever way you want to call it. It's, it's a principle that we have to prioritize. And this is uh, the key. The same thing in investing. You want to prioritize where your money's going to where it maximizes return. Prioritize what you're spending on. Prioritize what you're saying to people. Prioritize who you're actually talking to. Prioritize who you hang out with. All those things are wise to prioritize if you want to get the most out of the game of life. Great. What skills focus do you think one should develop to become a better business person or entrepreneur? Well, I think that uh, I just mentioned the prioritization, but if you're trying to do something that you're not inspired by, that you don't want to get up in the morning and do, I always say start with what you know every single day you can't wait to get up in the morning and do. Start there. I got a funny story I'd like to share with you that, that you'd probably get a kick out of. I was doing the Breakthrough Experience program, which is you know my, one of my signature programs. And I had a lady there who was, oh, late 20s, maybe 30. Yeah, I guess about 30. And no, she's probably late 20s. And um, I asked her a simple question in the program. What is it you would absolutely love to do in your life? I made everybody write it down. What is it you absolutely love to do? 
And she wrote down, I love spending time with my dog. I said, great. And uh, the second question I asked her after everybody wrote that, I said, how can I get, how can you get handsomely and beautifully paid to do what you love? And she, uh, she goes, man, I have no idea. I said, let's answer that question. How could you get handsomely and beautifully paid to do what you love, which is spend time with your dog? And she looked at me with a blank thing. And I said, she said, I have no idea. I said, look, we have to answer that. Nobody's going to leave today until we answer that. We got to think out of different ways you could get paid to do what you love. Because if your vocation and vacation is not the same, you're going to have a, what, Monday morning blues, Wednesday hump days, thank God it's Fridays and week friggin' ends your whole life. And I said, so what is it you can do? She finally says, well, I got a really cute dog, Eli, who's a little chihuahua, and people love taking pictures of him. I guess I could be like an agent and he could be like my model and I could, uh, you know, charge for pictures. I said, fabulous. So she went into Central Park that next week and she made five bucks first day. And then she came back with a little incentive because she bought her coffee. And uh, she decided she was going to teach the dog how to walk on its hind legs and walk holding hands with her a little bit and to get more attention so then the people would notice that more likely to get pictures. Then she also made a little outfit for it and started to put little outfits on it that would draw attention. And every time she'd go to the park, she went made $15. Well, with a short period of time with her little, little games of training and a little bit of, of clothes, she made $125 on average going into the park with her dog every time. Well, finally, one guy came up and um, said, you know, I think I could use your dog for a commercial. You know, well, let's talk. And she said, well, I'm his agent. She actually made a card with the agent of the dog. It's really quite cute. And um, they negotiated a deal, and the dog became the Taco Bell dog, the mascot for Taco Bell. Now, that put a couple million dollars in her pocket over a period of time. In the process of doing it, she then got three TV shows out of it. She had a whole wardrobe made for her dog. She eventually uh, pretended for fun that she married the dog, which made sensation. The dog got to go up and down red carpet events in Hollywood, New York, you name it. This is a famous dog, one of the most famous dogs in the world at the time. And she ended up having a, got a massive penthouse in New York near Columbus Circle. Her net worth was $22 million a few years ago. I mean, and the dog was interesting. The dog died within about seven years and she replaced the dog with identical looking dog and did it again and continued to, to train him and do the same thing for three generations of dogs. For 20-something years, 25 years, she did this and made a fortune and has one of the most famous dogs there. So here's a person that started to do something they couldn't wait to get up in the morning and do and loved doing and made a fortune out of it by filling the needs of people's hearts. So I'm totally – I could talk hours and hours and hours on this subject, but allow me to play devil's advocate for a minute because I was actually just listening to an audio yesterday – Someone who's pretty successful in another area saying that, hey, often when you, you have this hobby and then you do it as a job and let's say it's surfing and you have this hobby, you do it as a job and you, you're cleaning people's boards tw 12 hours a day and then two, two years later you can completely fall out of love with it because now it's not a hobby anymore, it's a job. And what would you say about that? Well, if it's something that's a hobby and it's not a mission, that would be true. Because the second you get pain associated with a hobby, it's no longer, you know, feeling the way you wanted it. But when it's something that you really love doing and inspired by it, I always say love is not just pleasure seeking. It's, uh, it's you're willing to embrace pain and pleasure in the pursuit of something you really love. You know, I, I, I travel full time. I do I've done 17 million miles traveling and some people go, how the hell do you do it? And I said, because I love traveling the world teaching. This is what I love doing. Mm. And, and, and so you'll endure pain and pleasure in the pursuit of it. Entrepreneurs who find their niche 
love what they do. I, I, I could I could share story after story of people that found that. Now, if you're going after some little niche hobby, yes, I'd agree. You'd burn out probably doing something. It's no no longer fun. But if it's something that really means something to you, you'll endure it. The, the key is, are you willing to figure out a way of serving people where it actually makes a great living doing it? That's the key. Sure. I think also a lot of people, they look at something and fantasize that it's all upsides. And travel is a great example of that. Now, travel was something I was never really that keen on. Because to me, travel meant being away from my competitors, away from my business when I wasn't global or mobile. And therefore, I saw it as falling back behind and not growing. And I hated it. And then when I met Gemma, who's now my fiance, we've been together nine years or so, we're about to get married. She was the opposite. She absolutely loved travel, wanted to sit on the beach. The rare time we did go on holiday, I'm always on the iPhone, in the gym, on the phone working. And there's a bit of a disconnect there. And then she said to me one day, well, how could we... How could you travel more? How could we go on more holidays and it work for you? And I didn't realise she was doing a, a Dr. Demartini on me, but she kind of <laughs> was. And I said, well, you know, if we could travel to places where I could maybe set up business locations or, you know, if, if you allow me to work for a certain amount of hours a day, maybe while you're sunbathing and then we meet and do all the stuff together that we loved. And, and now we travel all around the world, like eight times a year for probably three months of the year. Now my son is in the world championships. We play all the golf around the world and I love traveling and it's kind of gone crazy. That's exactly right. My, my wife, uh, who passed away about uh, 12 years ago, was a, got really good at it. She used to love to go to Le Cirque restaurant in New York. Le Cirque was kind of a foo-foo, you know, high-end. You know, we wouldn't be surprised if you have a $1,000 dinner kind of each night. And, um, and, and I really, frankly, I like simple food. I, you know, I'm a soup, salad, sandwich, sushi kind of guy. And uh, all this rich food and everything didn't do anything for me. But I would go there because, you know, it was the social hangout. She had a high value on social. Mine was practical. So uh, she saw that I was kind of... Uh, less inspired to go out in these big fancy dinners. And um, so I had a conversation with her. I said, you know, there's times when I'm just going to stay home if you're going to go out to do that because I, I, I just don't get a lot of fulfillment out of it. And so we talked about it. And I said, I said, if I was doing a business transaction, I'd probably enjoy it. So within a week, she contacted me. She says, I met with the head of this company and uh, his, her, his wife. And uh, I thought maybe if we went to dinner and you meet with him, I bet you're, you you could figure out a way of finding out his needs and serve his needs somehow. And back I was in there, I was at the restaurants every week. She basically went out of her way to make sure that I was winning out of doing what she wanted. And that's the, cre- that's the, that's the key of any transaction. Mm. Helping people get what they want while you get what you want. She was masterful at that. And um, I did the same thing. When I told her I was going off on a trip for two months touring around the world, I told her I'd meet her in Venice for a romantic rendezvous. And if she can create the absolute most fantastic week, I'll meet her up there. We'll have the most fantastic week. And she would plan it and get it all organized, even though I'd be gone for a period of time. So we kept learning how to communicate in each other's values. And we got to do things that both wanted that way. So a few things on this then, probably three points. First point is, forgive me if you hear a bit of dinging and reverb. Dr. John travels around the world and Skype is the only way we could really get together to do this. So that's one. Number two is the, a lot of people, when we talk about these things, so that's just gaming someone and that's kind of manipulating them. And obviously I know that's not the truth, but can you just explain what the process is going on here that's not manipulating someone to do what we want to do? No, let me do a definition of caring and manipulation. (laughs) Real simple definition. If you care about somebody, you 
figure out a way of getting what you want by making sure they get what they want and it's a fair exchange. That's it. That's called caring. You help them get what they want, they help you get what you want, and that's called negotiation and caring. Manipulating is when you're ineffective at caring and you're trying to get what you want at the expense of what they want. That's it. Mm. That's a real simple thing. If they don't feel that they're getting what they want, they feel manipulated. But if they feel that they're getting exactly what they want, they feel cared for. Sure. It's, it's the ratio of whether they get a fair, equitable exchange. And then the third thing point I wanted to make is enduring the challenge. So in the world of property, investing, entrepreneurship, business, wealth creation, you know, that business opportunity, all these things, I think often the delusion is, hey, I can have a completely mobile, hands-free lifestyle where everything is easy. I can do all that I want and none of that I don't. And Dr. Demartini, you'll know this more than anybody because you've done 17 million miles. But the downside of travel is crazy jet lag, harder to maintain a good balance of diet, harder to maintain a social relationship or a marriage, for example, because you're traveling all over the world. And there are downsides. So I don't want people to think that there's this just an illusion that it's all great. But but we endure the downsides and try and create solutions to overcome them because we love what we do. That's it. You just said it perfectly. The downsides are seen as opportunities to a person who's doing what they love. And the downsides are seen as overwhelmed when you're not. It's that simple. Mm. They're one's, a, one's a, a feeling like a failure and the other one feels like a feedback. So I'm a firm believer in uh, doing what you love, loving what you do, and uh, getting paid for it, and then learning the art of communicating whatever that is in terms of other people's values so they get to win out of it. And as long as you do it with a win, then no problem. I figured out a way of eating really well as I travel, I don't get jet lag, really. That's not a, my, my reality. I guess I'm never in one place long enough to settle down to get a, a, a pattern. <laughs> and uh, so that's not a reality. But I love traveling. It's, that was my dream since I was a teenager. Since I was a kid, I've been traveling. Mm. I mean, literally, when I was three, I used to sneak out of the yard and go down the street. <laughs> <laughs> when, I was, when I was 12 years old, uh, when I was nine, I was riding my bicycle 35 miles in different directions just to see where, what was out there. Mm. When I was 12, I was hopping trains to different cities. When I was 13, I was hitchhiking to different cities. And 14, I hitchhiked from Houston, Texas to California and all through Mexico. And then I eventually left and lived in Hawaii when I was 15. So I was a street kid and a, and a traveling kind of nomadic kid. Mm. But I love travel. So I suppose my take on that is I've had to learn to appreciate and, and love the downsides too, because travel wasn't something that I, I really loved to do. I'm a bit more of a homeboy, if you like. People always say to me, well, why don't you live in London in property? I mean, I live about an hour away from London in a, a much smaller, quieter city, but they don't realise this is where I was brought up and I kind of just feel very secure and comfortable and love it here. Uh, but uh, the first time I took my fiance and my kids in business class, there became a new challenge because now they wanted it all the time. So now I had to go and earn a load more money to pay for that. And the children definitely suffer jet lag a lot more than we do as adults. So then Gemma's kind of four days looking after them, getting up at crazy o'clock in the morning. But then when you, as you say, Dr. Martini, you talk about emerging passion, profession, vocation, vacation. Every time I'll, I'll go away now, whether it's Bobby's World Golf Championships or, or it's a holiday that Gemma wants to do, I'll time it in the school holidays so that you know, Gemma's happy that we're not taking him out of school. And I'll run like a speaker course or I'll run a seminar out there and merge my work with the travel so that I can earn a good amount of money, serve people and meet the kids and family's needs. That's exactly done my game. That's how I've done it. And you've been doing it, what, for 40 years or something? Yeah, I've been doing it a long time and... Uh... You know, my daughter now travels with me. My other one has got an, a, a fashion company. In fact, this is her fashion. <laughs> and uh, but we have a fashion company, so she's running that. 
and uh, Lena's running the business with me. My son is, uh, he's taking his time a bit, but he's, he's working in the business. He's working his way up. I'm pretty tough on him. So he's, I tell him that uh, you got to start at the bottom. You got to work your way up the top. You don't get free ride here. So it works. Sure. Now that's something else we could have a quick conversation about. So I've got about five more questions and and I want to respect your time and we're 49 minutes in. So if we do about two minutes per question, we'll hit bang on the hour. So the first one is the challenge of working with family and and hey, I've done it and, and you're doing it. Because some people are, oh, you should never work with family. And for, for other people, it's a quicker route into being an entrepreneur. So what's your stance? Well, some people do better with it. I mean, I've seen people that do amazing things. I, I have a, a friend of mine is in Sydney, Australia, who has a little empire he's building. And it's it's all family. I mean, I, I think he's got about 19 family members in this thing. <laughs> and uh, he does it. And they, they fight and they scream and they yell and they do things, but they run a big, great business. And, uh, you know, that's part of the game. You, you're going to have pain and pleasure, but you got to... You got to be able to, to stand your ground and say, this is business now. We got things to do. And, uh, and sometimes you have some, you know, fights and stuff. I have all the people, other people that they, they keep those completely separate. I, it depends on the personality and how well they communicate. I, I personally, uh, I, I didn't set out to say, okay, my, my kids are all going to work with me. But, uh, you know, in fact, I was uh, traveling a lot. I didn't uh, always see the kids every day, but they just tend to want to do business after a while. So I'm grateful for that. But, uh, you know, there's there's challenges with it, but there's rewards in it. So I, I always say the pain and pleasure is always conserved. What form do you want it in? Sure. Okay. Could you give us some books or audios or mentors that have inspired you in business, maybe your top three or five, or three or five that you can bring to mind at the moment? Well, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of a book that's called Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World by Gerard. It's a deep uh, philosophical idea that's basically about, uh, you know, serving the world. That's a good one. The Laws of Success by Napoleon Hill, I think, is another one that I think everybody can benefit by. The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker is another one that I've uh, definitely been blazed with. The Innovative Dilemma, which is another one by Christensen. And uh, Business Adventures by, you know, John Brooks. You may maybe recognize that one. That's a good one. And, of course, The Book of Wealth by Hubert Hound Bancroft. All those are, are uh, you know, great books, I think, that are, that are worth reading. But I could, I could go, you know, there's hundreds of them in my head. I could just go down the list probably. There's another one by the Robber Barons, which I think is an absolute fantastic book on the leaders of business from the last century and what they did and how they managed things. Great book. So I, I could go on and on. But anything by Peter Drucker, anything by Stafford Bear, anything by, you know, uh, Deming, I mean, these guys have known their stuff for a long time. Mm. I just tried to write them down and then you went so fast, I realised I'm just going to listen to the recording. I know you're an avid reader, but I believe, is it something like, forgive me if I've got the number wrong, is it 40,000 books or something you've read? No, it's just at the 30,000 mark. I I used to read 18 to 20 hours a day and uh, I developed a speed reading system and used to average about four to seven books a day for quite a while. And uh, now it slows down because I'm teaching so much, mm. but I still read every day. I just, I, I'm a, a lover of learning. I, I, a lot of it goes online now. So I just devour stuff online. Mm-hmm. And do you listen to audio? You know, when you're traveling, have you got in, embraced that? I've done some of that, but I don't, I can't say that I listen to a lot of audios. I have over the years, but I, I don't do that as frequently because many times I'm, uh, I have very specific, I have a, an agenda, believe it or not, every day. I get agendas every day of what I'm doing hour by hour, minute by minute in some cases. And um, so I schedule things in to do certain things. And most of it are very planned out reading or, or editing or writing or whatever along the way. 
So I don't always listen to audiobooks. Sometimes I do, but I, I, I watch a lot of YouTubes now and I, mm. I, I just read a lot. I mean, I spend hours on that. Sure. Okay. You got to put your, if you don't put your hand in the pot of glue, the glue is not going to stick. You got to put your hand in the great works of the masters. If you want to master your life. Well, I think the biggest difference in my, well, the two biggest differences in my life, if you could go before the day where everything changed and I decided to be an entrepreneur and after, and I'm, I'm by no means the finished article. I've got 60 years left to try and you know, make a difference and make some money. But the two differences are definitely the people I've met along the way in the circle of friends and mentors at a, maybe a, a higher level in certain areas and also embracing self-development and learning and reading and, and studying and making it enjoyable rather than a, a chore. Well, you know, I don't know if you remember a guy named Tremendous Jones, Charlie Jones. Yeah. Well, Charlie, I, I lectured with him, gosh, in 1983. And um, that's when we first did lectures together. And, and he used to say a really simple thing that it was so true. And that is, you're the same person today as you are tomorrow, except by the books that you read and the people that you meet. Mm. Wow. Okay. So six minutes left. In two minutes, what are the key factors of sustainable success? You know, not three years, one year, five years, sustainable, 43 years, 60 years success. The greater your cause, the greater your life. The greater your mission and greater your vision, the greater your destiny. It's, it's that simple. How big is your vision? How big is your, your, your cause? How big is your, the cause is basically how many people you want to serve. How I always say if you have a vast service for humanity that you want to fulfill, you've got a big life. Mm. You know, the, the great book of wealth mentions this, that uh, that the people that had the greatest fortunes in the world are the people that felt by divine providence and human sovereignty that they were destined to serve vast numbers of people and that they were destined to serve, to live at the greatest standards of life, not because of their ego, not because of their, their you know, they would just want to be show off, but because if they surrounded themselves with the finest. They invested in inspiration and raised the standard of every different field. And that raised the economy and raised more job opportunities for people. And so raising the bar every year and raising the, the, the bar on how many people you can serve is a essential component for achieving greater success or having to do the same bar with the more, more effectiveness and efficiency, either one, but both is probably the smartest way. Sure. Thank you. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self if you could go back and meet yourself? Well, keep on going. You're on track, dude. <laughs> what about your 30-year-old self? Same thing. I, I don't ever look back and say, you know, I wish I'd have done this. I, I, don't, I don't have that reality. I, I just feel like I'm grateful along the way, and I feel like I've been on the right track the whole time, and I'm doing what I love doing. I just kept to what I did best, which is research, write, travel, teach. I did a thing with Mary Kay years ago, Mary Kay Cosmetics, and I lectured uh, to 4,500 women. And um, afterwards, I went and talked to her, and I asked her, what advice can you give a young aspiring speaker who wants to travel the world and speak? And she said, well, every day, write down the six or seven highest priority action steps you can do that day that can help you fulfill your dreams. So I did that every day, and I kept records of what they were, and I found out what were the priorities of those, and it came out research, write, travel, teach. So I then delegated everything else out of the way and just stayed focused on what I did best. And so I'm very grateful for the opportunity to just for many, many years, get to research, write, travel, teach. I've delegated everything else out. Great. Now, I, I know that you're not someone that dwells on mistakes and, and, I, and I understand, certainly I was inspired by your book, The Gratitude Effect. And, and I know that you, well, I don't want to project, but I assume, I think that you believe that mistakes are there for a reason and challenge. But if I could park that for a minute and ask you maybe to 
share one mistake or something, a mistake that you'd have learned along the way that maybe you learned from that might help other entrepreneurs? Well, I don't know. I don't think of it as a mistake. I just call it the normal learning pattern. You, you go through stages of life and it's, you know, they're, they're learning patterns. I like to think of it this way, that when I was in my 20s, I still subordinated to individual and collective authorities more so than I do today. And so instead of trying to, anytime you hear yourself should, ought to, supposed to, got to, have to, must, the imperative language is whispering in your head. It's not you speaking. It's some injunction that's injected into your consciousness because of you subordinating to somebody you've given authority to. And as long as you think that somehow there's somebody out there that's that you're, that's still your authority who's writing the author of your own book, you're going to sit there and try to be setting goals that aren't yours instead of setting goals that are congruent with who you really are. And I think when I was in my 20s, I still had some of that. By the time I hit 30s, I, I reached a... I did an experiment which made me start to question a lot of things. And I started asking, I wonder what else I've been told that's bullshit. And then I started to confront just because somebody said so. I didn't just take it, oh, that's so. I started to ask it and put it through reasoning and put it through really testing to see if it was sound. And I started listening to my own, I guess you could say, intuition and reason and trust myself on it. It didn't mean I didn't learn from mentors, but I didn't just assume because they said it, it was accurate. I, I, I thought it through and made sure it was accurate. And not subordinating to others is probably the greatest lesson. Giving yourself permission to be, let the voice and the vision on the inside be louder than all opinions on the outside. That's the basic one. Great. Thank you. What does the word disruptive mean to you? This podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. What does that mean to you? It means that if you're on a mission and you're individualized and you're really authentic and you're doing something that's original, that serves, you're going to disrupt the status quo. So be prepared. At first, you're going to get ridiculed. You're going to be violently opposed until you become self-evident with a new pioneering idea. <laughs> so get, get, be willing to disrupt the, the, the tradition and convention and the bullshit that's out there that's stagnant. It's funny you say that just on a, on a quick note. I used to have this delusion that the better I got at something, the less critics and haters and challenges I'd have. And I remember, uh, as I grew in business and maybe write books and, you know, you get critiqued online by people who don't know you. You realize that as you get uh, greater or more well-known at something, you also bigger, build a bigger following of critics. Do well, you agree with that? And if absolutely. so, how do we deal with it? I, in my program on uh, entrepreneur development, I, I teach that. I say that many people that are young entrepreneurs have a fantasy that they're going to get fame and fortune. But um, fame comes two ways. It's two-edged sword. The more people that support you, the more people that challenge you. If you're only willing to handle a little bit of challenge, but you want a whole lot of support, you're only going to grow to the level of challenge you can handle. So you got to embrace both support and challenge, hero and villain, saint and sinner, you know, the pairs of opposites. And the more you can embrace the pairs of opposites as a leader and see them synchronously paired like a magnet, uh, entangled, if you will, in quantum theory, the more you're empowered. So you got to be able to handle paradox like that. So I always say that the more people are pissed off at me, the more I'm making a dent, you know, things are happening. <laughs> if I'm not being crucified, I'm probably not on purpose. And how does one deal with that? And just quickly, because we're pretty much bang on the hour now. And again, I want to respect your time. So just quickly, how do we deal with that challenge? Do we just kind of ignore it and carry on with our mission? Do we try and engage in it and educate those people? Do, you know, how, how do we deal with the critics and challenges? Well, first of all, you realize that uh, there's various people that have, you know, intention of challenging you because they're jealous, because they don't like what you do. It goes against their values. 
there's no way you're going to please everybody. So you can't just sit there and go, oh my God, I wish they didn't do that. You want to go, you know, what am I doing specifically that's challenging your values? How is it serving me? Who is doing exactly the opposite at that moment? Who's supporting me? And put the pair of opposites. Two poles of a magnet are going on at the same time. The greater the challengers, the greater the supporters. I've taught politicians that, uh, celebrities that, lots of people, how important it is when you got a critic, look for the supporters. When you got a supporter, look for the critic. And they'll both of them, if you see them synchronously, you'll keep yourself centered. If you see supporters without critics, you'll get puffed up and you'll have hubris to bring you down. If you see critics without other, you get uh, shamed and you'll get people supporting you to build you up. But nature is always trying to keep those balanced. And that's where maximum growth occurs. So keep your mind eyed on both of them at the same time to the same degree. And you'll keep steady, centered and focused on an objective goal. Excellent. So I just want to extend a, a huge thank you from myself and on behalf of all the disruptive entrepreneur community and followers around the world. We have uh, subscribers in 126 countries now. And, uh, you know, whatever country we've been in listening to this, I know we've had amazing value. And, and thank you for sharing your time. Where can we find you online? So if someone doesn't know where to follow you, whether it's social or whatever, where can we find you and follow you? Well, the, probably the easiest way is simply go to my website, and that's uh, drdmartini.com. Okay. Just doc, drdmartini, D-R-D-Martini, D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I, dmartini.com, drdmartini.com. Okay. And one final word from me, again, a second and final thank you to Dr. John Demartini. We actually met yesterday and, and had a meeting and we're discussing doing some work together. And whilst we can't really reveal it yet and it's not fully agreed, it's quite exciting. I think we might be bringing Dr. John to a different part of the world. Maybe he's never been to, which I hope is exciting for him as it's high on his values to travel and teach. And uh, for all of us who listen on the community in the Disruptive Entrepreneur and Progressive Property, you've got a great opportunity to see an amazing man who has an amazing amount of knowledge, I think can really help you grow as an entrepreneur. So that's something to keep your eyes and ears open for when we can talk about that and we have sorted the details, we will let you know. And that could be the start of a great relationship in the future, I hope. And uh, want to thank you once again. Remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. And please do ensure that you're in the Disruptive Entrepreneurs community if you're not, because that's just been launched. There's thousands of us in there disrupting and making a difference to ourselves and other people. And that's on Facebook and it's called the Disruptive Entrepreneurs community. So finally, <laughs> once again, thank you, Dr. John. Uh, have a great day. I know you're in the UK teaching at the moment. Is that right? Yes, I'm in London and I'm uh, doing exactly what I love doing, which is researching, writing, traveling, and teaching, as they say. Great. Thank you very much. Have a great day, and uh, thank you for listening. Thank you, Rob. 